Welcome to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. If you like what you hear, I'd love you to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Write a review, and if you're so inclined, tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. Be sure to visit our website, talkingbeats.com, where you can find much more information about the guests, support the show in various ways, sign up for the newsletter, and be in touch directly with me. As always, the dialogue continues on social media at Talking Beats Podcast. I'm so glad you're here with me. Now, to the conversation. On today's program, political commentator and leadership expert David Gergen. He served as White House advisor to four presidents of both parties, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. He's professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. In addition, he serves as a senior political analyst for CNN and works actively with a rising generation of new leaders. He's out now with a new book called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. In the book, whose title is borrowed from a speech given by Oliver Wendell Holmes, Gergen pays homage to leaders past and present, from pathbreakers like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, John Lewis, John McCain, and Harvey Milk, to historic icons like Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, Winston Churchill, and Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Many of the fundamental questions about the nature of leaders are addressed. How are leaders made? What role do the followers play in the efficacy of a leader? What, after all, is leadership itself? Gergen says it's time for new blood, new ideas, and that the old ways have not always worked or often worked. But in a society as fragmented and increasingly tribal as America in 2022, where's the case to be made for widespread optimism? And who is carrying the torch? Well, to discuss this and much more, David Gergen joins me now. I'm pleased he's doing so. Welcome. It was good to be here with you. And thank you for that kind introduction. You captured extremely well much of what this book is about. And uh, you teed it up well. So I, I appreciate it. I know you've got a terrific audience. And, uh, and we, we probably won't spend much time uh, talking about classical music. But I do re- respect very much the fact that uh, you're a concert a cellist and played like 200 times a year across the country, which is amazing. Well, thank you. And, and hopefully we'll get to music a little bit because it may be our, our last unifier, as I sometimes call it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but as you, you address in the book uh, the central question uh, of, of why, but maybe tell us, for those who haven't read it yet or, or may not sure. have a chance to read it, why this book and, and talk about how long you had been thinking about it. Well, I, you know, I, I did serve in, in the government for much of my professional life. But in 1999, some, you know, some, something over 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, where I took up a post at, at Harvard as a um, uh, professor of practice, as they call it. Not, I'm not an academic, um, but, but I, they, they kindly invited me to come in. And when, after I got there, I, I was asked by the dean if I would help uh, begin a, a new center on leadership, on public leadership, which I agreed to, to spend three or four years doing that. And uh, I wound up, I wound up uh, devoting about 20 years to the project. But it was very much an attempt to see if we could not only uh, recruit and, and uh, attract uh, young people into public service, uh, but it wanted, we wanted to train them. And so we, there's a lot of effort that goes into preparation of people for leadership. You know, it's not something you're just born with. You, you really have to develop it 
And it's, it's for many organizations, starting with the military in the United States, the leadership development is a prime objective uh, of those organizations so that they can succeed. All of which is to say that I've had, to, I've had the privilege really of working with the younger generation that's coming up. And in contrast to the pessimism that all of us share with regard to our national life today, um, it's, it's, it's sort of a dark period, I think, that we're going through. Um, it, it, we've seen these kind of things before, and we have, as John Meacham, the historian, good friend of Walter Isaacson's, uh, points out in his writings, you know, we've, we face perhaps, uh, one could say, four existential threats as a country. The, the early days of the Republic, when George Washington almost lost, he lost six of his first eight battles. And the, and the, and the, the people trying to put together the revolution, you know, almost failed. They almost died for it. But that we had that we had that threat. We then had the Civil War. I was just out on the battlefields of, um, of Gettysburg over the weekend, and it uh, remains a uh, as the Gettysburg remains a um, I think one of the most uh, moving uh, areas of our country. When you see how many people died there on these fields, it's just unbelievable. But then then we also had the Depression, the Great Depression, and finally we had an existential threat in the Second World War. Uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't always obvious that we would survive the Second World War. Certainly, UK, the UK was on its back heels when we got when we got in, and the Japanese were a powerful force. So, but what Meacham's point is, and I think is a good starting point, is that in the four times we've really been challenged with our very existence, we've come through it three out of those four times. We've done pretty well. We're, we have a pretty good record of a track record of getting through crises. Abigail Adams wrote famously to their son, John Quincy Adams, when he was a teenager, that, that great moments of peril bring forth great statesmen. And frequently in, in the midst of when these threats, people, people arise who become, uh, become leaders and become, uh, can attract major followers and change history. No, we're no better example these days than Zelensky in Ukraine. Uh, he made, he's made all the difference with his, you know, coming out of a, uh, of a entertainment industry, one would not expect someone to have that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, uh, gravitas. But he has, and I think he's proven that good, really good leaders can make a difference in the life of a country, the life of a society. So what this book is all about is it's a clarion call to the young people I've had an opportunity to work with over the years to come into the public arena. To, to, to stand up and fight for making us a better country, for getting us through this uh, series of crises that we've been in for the last years. Uh, and it's also, the book is also a guidebook, a practical guidebook for how to succeed if you're, if you're trying to become a leader. You know, what are the steps you have to go through and what are the kind of, you know, what are the developments you ought to be looking for? And it all, it starts, leadership starts from within. I'll come back to that. But that, those are the purposes of the book. And and in dealing with it, one has to one has to confront the fact that we have an existing generation and the baby boomers who have been in charge of the country now for low these many years, uh, going back to the early 1990s. Uh, and it's it hasn't worked out well. We have some terrific people who've been baby who are baby boomers, who are you know wonderful leaders. But they, as a culture, we haven't come together, and the leadership I think has been disappointing in the long run. And so from my point of view, it's time to pass the torch. Uh, we should not be electing a new president who's gonna be in his eighties or maybe her eighties uh, when they get elected. You, you just can't handle it from there. Listen, I'm just turning 80. 
I, I can speak from experience. You have you 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 lose a step, and you don't you can't you're not as reliable on memory. You're not as reliable on judgment as you are when you're younger. Uh, well, you, you present, seem pretty good on yeah. memory so far. I'm faking it. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, You're not 80 yet, I guess. So. <laughs> no, I've got a couple of days left. Yep, thank you. Um, but, but, but nonetheless, uh, what I do feel is that it's irresponsible to, to, to place people in the presidency when they're 80 years old. It just, you just don't know what you're getting. It's a complicated world we're living in. It's extraordinarily complicated. And what we need is, is more of the baby boomers to, to, to gracefully leave the stage. It's not that they can't contribute mightily. They can as mentors, you know, they can as employers, as buddies, as friends, as, you know, there are different ways you can serve people. You can serve in your community. There are a lot of things you can do in community, but the leadership of the country, really ought to be passed now to the up and coming generations, the millennials uh, and Generation Z. And we ought to be preparing those uh, those generations for service. I, I happen, and I'll come back to this, but I happen to be a big believer in national service. I think every young person ought to be encouraged to give a year back to their communities um, and if possible, two years. And we then ought to trade in so that if you do a year of service, you get a year of your tuition debt knocked off. Um, and we ought to do it. And so you can earn your way out of these, these tuition debts. Uh, and you can begin, and frankly, if you do service, as I discovered going in the Navy after law school, you know, if you, you're going to meet with people who are very different from you, uh, and you're going to have to get, learn how to get along. And what I did, what I found was that a lot of the people I met, especially when I came out of the Navy and had list, worked with a lot of enlisted people, there were so many young people who were enlisted, who, you know, had dropped out of community college, they hadn't finished college, but they were first rate human beings, and they really cared about the country. And I think they, they we owe them more respect. And we, we respect our military veterans, but we need to create veterans of, of, of civic life. Um, and and the, this book is a lot about how and why we should do that. And some of the examples that you cited, that we ought to, we, we don't have a lot of role models these days, but there are some. Kay Graham, I read about because she was, I was very close to Kay for a period of time. Um, and it was a wonderful relationship. John McCain, I knew not so well, you know, but he, I, I just thought he was a first class leader. I think uh, John Lewis, uh, I have someone I had a chance to spend time with. And um, again, I think a, a wonderful person. So there are individuals like that that are coming out, but I think we need a lot more like them. And I think that's a, a matter of uh, focusing and training people. And, and developing incentives for people to say, yeah, I'd like to come and give a year back, two years back, and maybe later in life when I finish my first career, maybe I'll come back and work in a nonprofit and put in 10 or 15 years. And we have some wonderful people running our nonprofit. So uh, that, that's the essence of it. I'm sorry to be so bloviated. And not at all, but you mentioned a lot of things. I want to cover a few sure. of them. First of all, go back to the four existential threats that you talked about via yes. Nietzsche and talk about the sort of leaders we had during each of these existential threats and contrast them with perhaps the kind of leader we have or don't have today, if indeed there is an existential threat uh, going on today. Certainly, yeah. well, certainly it, there it, must be more than one. <laughs> <laughs> well, the remarkable thing was in each of the, in each of the existential threat period, uh, periods so that were so challenging to America. The first one was dur during the days of the New Republic. 
and we had leaders, you know, leaders who sprang forth and in, in, the, in the way that Abigail Adams have been talking about. I'll come back to that. Uh, then in the Civil War brought forth Lincoln. Uh, and many of the people who came around that group and John Hay and Nicolay, for example, who were his assistants, went on, you know, especially John Hay, went on to really significant service to the country. Uh, and then you move on to the Depression and Second World War. You know, FDR was central to both those things. So who would have thought? And when, then after he came down with polio, uh, the worst, the most feared scourge of his time, who would have thought that he could have brought that kind of leadership? But he did. But it all goes to, to this uh, larger question. And Warren Bennis, who was the leadership guru and a dear friend who's passed from us now, I'm afraid. But he, uh, he used to ask this question. How is it that when we were a country of three million people uh, back in the days of the re early republic, and then with, uh, with three million people, we could produce six world-class leaders, Washington, Jefferson, uh, Hamilton, Adams, uh, the and uh, Franklin and um, Madison. We had six world-class leaders, population of three million. Today we have 330 million people plus, and we can't find one leader who, who is world-class. We have a hard time stretching for that. Where are our Zelenskys? It's a really big question. I'm not sure we know the answer, but I do think we tear. We we celebrate. We've substituted celebrities for for heroes. But do you have a theory? Where are our Zelenskys? Are they in the private sector? Are they playing a flute in some symphony instead of leading a, cello, a state? <laughs> cello. Well, I didn't want to say that, but <laughs> are they are they around? They just don't want to do it, or or has the has the it's a it's a good question. Focus? Some some are discouraged. Uh, it's hard. And, you know, when I go out and speak to young people, so, so a lot of people ask me, well, I, you know, this sounds good, but I've got a huge amount of debt. I can't I can't I have to pay my bills. You know, I've got a young child at home. Uh, it's, it's hard enough during the pandemic um, and just to just to keep a roof over our heads and keep bread on the table. And now with inflation, you, you know, you got 60 dollar gallons of gas or car full of gas and that sort of thing. It's really hard. And what can I do? And the world seems so big and I'm so small. Well, First of all, um, my own experience, uh, Daniel, is that there are a lot of young people who would like to make a difference. And I see two streams that are pretty steady these days. One stream of people coming into the back into the country, back into our workforce, are the veterans who've been serving in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, they remind me very much of the World War II generation. They really want to make a difference. They come back and, they, you know, with the world, like the World War II, they, the World War II people sort of stripped off their, their military uniform, put on civilian clothes and went out and tried to save this country. And they were we had a really marvelous group. That's one of the best generations we've had uh, that that. So I see a lot of people today. Uh, one young man who, who was a student in my class and went over and he had a, he had a couple of tours uh, and then he came back after three years overseas. And what did he do? He joined up with Teach for America and he spent two or three years in, in, in the classroom. And then he ran for Congress. And unfortunately, he ran two hard races in, in Trump country and he was uh, and he got whipped. But he would be a wonderful congressman. I hope he stays. His name is Dan Fian. But I see people like that all the time now who are coming through, who really do want to make a difference, who think it's this is a, this is their moment. And it is their moment. Uh, the second group, and, and it's a very diverse group. 
But you look at people who, who uh, started Black Lives Matter or, or who started, uh, you know, the uh, Me Too movement. Who were they? They were you know, basically you know, young black women who were in their 20s and 30s. Black women increasingly occupy the moral high ground in this country. Um, and, you know, we don't celebrate them enough. But the, uh, if, if you just look at, look at the Stacey Abrams of the world who are you know, emerging in Georgia, um, they're, they're really important figures. I don't agree with their politics like AOC. She's much more liberal than I am. But I really respect her for getting in the arena and fighting for what she believes. But you're and hitting on something you're, you're hitting. If stay on this point for a minute, you're hitting on something crucial, which is that that uh, you don't agree with her, but you respect her. Yes. And this is this is not a statement that we should just pass by lightly. This is a this is a crucial thing it, in, in music. We often have a disagreement and you say, well, I, I really don't like your musical idea, but I respect you. I respect the spirit behind the idea, but I, I can't yeah. agree with it myself. In, in society, we have an amazing lack of ability to say I respect them, but I fundamentally wholly disagree with them. And, and so what, what you said maybe sound like a part of a, a bigger thing, but that's that's an important sentiment in itself. Isn't it something that we're losing? Yes. Yes. We've stopped listening to each other. You know, once we, once you get sort of the uh, you, you, you want to know who somebody is, you check out in about two or three things and two or three sentences and you say, oh, I'm not going to get along with that person or this is going to be hard. You know that that people in red, the people who are conservative now, when they move their housing, almost invariably go to a neighborhoods where there were people who are conservative reign, whether that's the, the large part of the society. And similarly, people who come from urban areas. You know, tend to go into um, a blue to off to the left, and never the twain shall meet. So, we've we've come a long, long way to becoming divisive. What I'm trying to argue is that in really divisive times, when you're really threatened, we tend to rise. Our history has we've risen up to the occasion. We've risen to the challenges, and that's the point I'm trying to make. That's what I'm trying to encourage the young people to to, to gather to themselves. And you've got to be patient. You've got to be persevering. You've got to be courageous. Uh, you've got to be thoughtful. You've got to be empathic. You've got to have all these different traits. Um, and they're not easy to have. And people are going to make mistakes. But above all, you've got to be committed to the notion that this is a better country and can be a better country than we have been for the last 15 years. We cannot, we're on an unsustainable path right now. And it's very dangerous. It's a, you know, I've compared it to a, a car being driven along the side of a cliff in the middle of the night uh, with no headlights and, and a, a driving rainstorm. You know, after a while, you can go off the cliff. And that we're doing that to ourselves on the, on the environment as it is. But who are the people who most want to save the environment today in this country? It's young people who want to do that. Who are the people who are trying to start and stop the gun violence? It's people like Parkland and David Hogg and people like that who came through that. You know, I, I think one of the things that's, that is very apparent is that with the new social media, you can get to the top faster. You can attract a following faster than you could have others. AOC would never have done and uh, gotten to the level she's gotten to without having uh, social media. Uh, but it's also true that social media is a two-edged sword. And it can be used to slay. So when people get to the top, it's easier to get to the top. It's very hard to exercise power at the top. And it's really easy these days to fall off, to, to slip off, 
because a lot of people want to do you in and they don't want you to succeed and they want to treat you as an enemy. And that's the, that's the danger point that we're in right now. Well, you mentioned 15 years. So yes. let's say roughly 15 years. What has been happening over the past 15 <clears throat> well, years? 15 years takes us back to 2000. Uh, what? Well, listen, I'd go all the way back actually to 1992 or so. Okay. That's what, that's when the, uh, that's when the, 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 um, the warrior generation, World War II generation, essentially gave up uh, gave up major power. We had seven presidents in a row, from John F. Kennedy through George H. W. Bush. Seven presidents, different parties. All seven wore a military uniform. All seven gave back to their country when they were called. They and and after, in 1992. We turned back on the we we the the World War II generation basically left the halls of power and we turned it over to the baby boomers and Bill Clinton. I've been friends with Bill Clinton for years and years, and I think the world of him. But with that group that came in with Clinton, but especially you know if Clinton came in '92, if you look at Newt Gingrich, he came in '94, and that began really began to change our politics. Um, and of the presidents, with five presidents we've had since early 90s, not one has worn a military uniform. One, George W. Bush, to his credit, was in the reserves, but it's not quite the same. You know, depending on the great state of Texas from the state of Oklahoma, it's not quite the same. <laughs> <laughs> so when you talk about wearing the military uniform, what yeah. do you think it does other than perhaps add a level of commitment, pre-commitment to the country and, and also a level of gravitas? Uh, uh, well, yeah, sure. It's good. It's a good question. I, I do think that the discipline that comes uh, from being in the military, I think that the, the, the importance of, being, of team building, you can't survive in the military unless you can build a good team. Um, the, the importance of, um, of uh, learning how to lead others uh, listen, I, I, I came out of two elite schools, uh, undergraduate life and then law school. And then, as I mentioned earlier, working with 50 enlisted uh, seamen on a big ship was a was one of the best leadership schools I could have ever gone to. Uh, and when I was in the Navy, I was asking lawyers. I thought at that point, I thought I might go practice law, but I wasn't sure. Um, it, but almost to a person when I asked, leading lawyers, should I go, should I go, should I be an officer in the Navy or should I be a legal uh, eagle? And uh, they said to a person, they said, no, 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 go be an officer, much better experience. And if you go study the law, it'll take us years, two or three years to, to unteach you from all the dumb things you've learned in the Navy. Um, but um, it, uh, I actually had, a, had an interview with Richard Nixon, who was out of office. He'd been beaten a couple of times. It came through the fall into Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, where I was studying, and um, I was I was called in to have an interview with him. And the World Series were on, and uh, he he'd look at me and ask a question, and I'd start to answer, and he'd look over at the TV set and watch the World Series while I was answering every time. It sort of turned me off going into the law. <laughs> Speaking when of I left, I said, "When I left, I said, by the way, what's the score?" <laughs> <laughs> Now, speaking of Richard Nixon, you you talk about uh, Charles de Gaulle here, and um, yes. I'm just going to read a little bit here because Nixon uh, introduced you. You must have been a very young man at this point. Nixon was. Uh, introduced you to the memoir by de Gaulle, Edge of the Sword. And yes. de Gaulle wrote, quote, a leader must know when to dissemble, when to be frank. 
yes. must pose as a servant of the public in order to become its master, and only after a thousand intrigues and solemn understandings will he find himself with full power. Yes. And end quote. Well, uh, that that doesn't sound like the most uh, benevolent, uh, perhaps no, no, no. likable I, I, qualities in a leader, but you know, it, it's, 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 it's like, what does it say? It's come straight out of Machiavelli, doesn't it? In many ways. Um, and uh, you know, human nature being what it is, we've had recurring you know periods when we've had leaders like that. Um, and De Gaulle, De Gaulle was ideal for Nixon, but for if you were a small D Democrat who believed in democracy. You know, De Gaulle was too, but too much of a one-man show. It was too, it was too close to authoritarianism, and especially the way De Gaulle could dismiss anything that, you know, the the ends justified all the means for it, for him, and that's what Machiavelli was all about: the ends justifying the means. Um, and I think De Gaulle, De Gaulle is not our De Gaulle to give you access to the press question. You, know, I believe that the president of the United States. In a democracy, must be answering to the press frequently because you don't have to go up and answer questions as you do in a parliament. Well, De Gaulle had one press conference a year, one, and he demanded you submit the questions before he had the press conference. Mm. Now, we would never stand for that today, but it is, there's a temptation in that direction that you find in a lot of leaders today, you know, because. In, during the process of, of the order breaking down, the process of us becoming so divided, we've dropped a lot of our what, what's acceptable behavior that, that is, we're, we, we sort of define deviancy down, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say. Um, and I, and I, think that's, I think that's dangerous for us. It's sort of truth now seems to be whatever you can get away with. If you, you know, if you if something happens, bad happens, you, the White House press secretary goes out there, they try to come up with an answer people won't, will believe in. But if they don't, if they can't stir the public with, they give some other answer. And they keep looking for answers that people will then be on their side. It's not a search for truth. It's a search for, you know, who, who can we get to genuflect to us? Well, is there a way out? What's the way out? The, the way out is to have and to encourage the people, the young people of the country, there's not enough room in the U.S. military, nor should we. We don't need a militarized country. But what we do need is, is something that's the equivalent of giving back to your country in the military. What can you give back to your country and your community and, and, and the urban environments in which we find ourselves? So, there's so many drugs. There's so much mental illness now. We need people who are coming out and saying, this is unacceptable. We're simply not going to. This is, we're at a real pivot point. We can either keep on going the way we are and we're going to screw this up royally, or we can change. And I think the best hope for change is in the younger generations. I am not at all confident we're going to change a lot in the next two, three, four, five years. But I'm increasingly hopeful that we can change over time. And I don't think it's out of reach. David Gergen, when you say we may screw it up royally, what does that mean? What would the royal screw up Look like in the United States oh, or the world. Well, well you know, it, was, it's, it shouldn't be forgotten that Lincoln calls us the last great hope of mankind. Um, and what I think what we're, what we're looking to is can we get more people, and these can be of any age, who come into, and to come into public service 
committed to trying to change the way we live with each other, to move it toward a more respectful hearing, to to uh, bring forward the kind of people who are going to make a difference. You know, can we elect a Congress? I, I, I'm, I'm very involved with a, a, an organization called With Honor. It's, it um, was formed by a young man who was a student of mine, who also then, he, he, he started a, a program when he was at Chapel Hill as an undergraduate in Kibera, uh in Kenya. It was in the slums there. Um, it was called Carolina and Kibera. Uh, but when he came back out, when he came, when he finished college, he, he went in the Marine Corps and then he came out and went to business school and the Kennedy School. Um, he started this group called With Honor six or seven years ago, and I, I, happen, I happen to be chair of the board for it, the advisory board. Um, and the notion was to identify and then recruit and train and prepare uh, people coming out of the military to run for the House of Representatives on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and we, we um, uh, supported some 20 who elect, were elected. Uh, two two cycles ago, with ten, ten were Republicans and ten were Democrats. Was, and but everybody who came in that way had to sign a pledge that they were going to work in a bipartisan way. They would work with people across the aisle, and they have by and large kept to that. And you're seeing there's a caucus now in the House called uh, For Country, which is an outgrowth of, of With Honor, in which people who are actually in in office and there 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 are Democrats who are in that group. Seth Moulton. For example, as a student of mine, we're very close. He ran he ran as a Democrat, and he's a military veteran, four tours in Iraq. Um, and but also there's a Mike Gallagher on the Democratic on the Republican side, PhD out of Georgetown, um, just a wonderful young man, and he's exactly the kind of Republican you want to see. He's he's principled, he's thoughtful, he cares about the country, uh, and he's reasonable. You can reach people like that, and. Instead of, instead of this craziness we now have that you can't be seen with somebody across the aisle. You know, Liz Cheney, I just believe, deserves huge laurels for her courage in standing up. I bet her father's really, really happy with her. How many people are reasonable in this country? <laughs> <Make enough reason. laughs> I mean, now, we're led to believe we're led to believe maybe yeah. not many, but maybe there are more, more than more than people think. Yeah. More you know, than he, he, Heidi Heidkamp has been on here with me a few times, and, and yeah. she's she's made the point that, that she used to win races in North Dakota, 60, 65 percent. She doesn't think she'd get more than 40 percent now. She says oh, she hasn't moved anywhere. Right. Uh, yep. it's, it's amazing. But but she says, you know, I, I always at least try to have arguments with Republicans, or at least in the past tried, but she doesn't anymore with Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. And then she always say, we yeah. go all hang the Christmas lights together yeah. afterwards, yeah. you know? <laughs> that's reasonable. Yeah, it is reasonable. And, 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 and we all bemoan the fact that that, that, that civic culture has, is disappearing. And, you know, it's, it's, you can just feel it. If you've been around for 10 years, 20 years, or a long time as I have been, you, it's just, it's, it's more and more, more and more obvious. But at some point, I think we're going to snap back. I think I think the resistance to this craziness is growing, and people don't want to have their kids go through it. They don't want to have their kids run for office because it you know it, it lessens them. And I, I we we're we're not we're going to pay a heavy price unless we snap back. And I think the young get that they understand better than those of us who are old, much older. You know, they're the ones who are going to pay the price for for the environment. You know, you, you 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 play a lot in New Orleans. New Orleans has changed. That you know, the whole country has changed around New Orleans. New Orleans was after Katrina. You know, it's never fully recovered from that. And you know, that that's we should not be willing to accept 
that we can't rebuild this country. We can. I, I personally, I think, by the way, there are some opportunities internationally. I would love to see when the dust settles, when it's safe to do this, to have an international peace corps to go into Ukraine. I would love to see a call go out all across the democracies of the world to come sign up and, and, and spend some time in Ukraine. And let, let's show the world that we can rebuild it. I think we can. Let's talk about music briefly, because as you know, yes. David Gergen, everybody on here talks about music in some way or another. You happen to be very passionate. We were chatting earlier about uh, mutual musician friends of ours and things yes. like that. So music is a big part of your life, right? And and what, what does it do for you? And what are your musical, I don't know, tastes? What do you love? Well, I, I, have, I have really enjoyed this. I'm, I'm not trained in classical music. I wish I were. I, I was just something that I should have done a long time ago. Um, but, I, but I have had, you know, uh, people who are uh, in, in my classes. I had Damien Wetzel, for example, in my class. He was, he, he was a dancer for the New York City Ballet. Uh, as his legs were giving out, he came to the county school. He got trained up. And what is he? He's now president of the Juilliard school is wonderful mm -hmm. um or you say take henry timbs who came out of you know who's now uh, running lincoln center yeah, or take deborah borda who was you know we we mentioned her all of those came people came through the work that i i've seen and gotten to know them i'm most interested right now in a woman named uh summer doris summer who is a harvard professor and she works on romance language comes out of romance languages but she has been working in the area of if you bring culture to a city, and she's using Columbia now as a, as a demonstration site, if you bring music to the city and if you have various kinds of cultural events going on, that the anger drops, that the level of disgust drops and people start coming together. And she's, she's working on a whole sort of notion of can we, and in, in, in our evolving cities, can we introduce culture and music more fully? Can people live off that? And I think the, the, what she's finding, she has a conference coming up she's put together um, in the next few days. And um, she's, what she's finding is that the introduction of culture really can help. It, 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 it gives something unifying. Uh, I, 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 we used to give some medals to, to cities that were doing really innovative things. And we gave a big prize once to, to uh, this was Ford Foundation, um, gave a big prize to Chicago as, as a city. And the operation there was, it was a summer program for kids with art. And they did a lot of painting and they got instruction in, in art and that sort of thing. And then they went out and painted the buses of Chicago and they painted a lot of the benches, the park benches there. And it was, it livened the city up. It made it, and, and you could see these kids, some kids came from very elite families and some kids came out of the, you know, out of the, out of the worst situation, but they worked with each other. It's, it's in, just like in the Second World War, when you had a salt and stall from Massachusetts saluting a Polish kid from Brooklyn, you know, the world was good. Because there were people look past the skin color, they look past where you know what your zip code was. They look past, you know, whether you might have gotten in trouble with the law. They look, can you do the job? Can you help get this done? And people did work things like that. Jimmy Carter has shown that with all of that the Habitat for Humanity. You can really change people's minds about this. There's a, there's a guy named Ibu Patel in Chicago who's got a big. He's a Muslim. And he has been um, finding ways to bring to bring people from different faiths together, uh, just as people going to different cultures can do that. So I I think that there, 
it's just hard. I, maybe I'm wrong, but it's just hard to accept that mankind is destined to go down this road much farther than how far we've gone down already. Well, you mentioned music being able to help us. I was in Guatemala yeah. recently, and I, I played in, uh, in Guatemala the uh, the, complete, uh, the the cello suites of Bach there, and I'm sure there were many people, you. you know, who had never heard uh, solo Bach on the cello there. They were kind of stunned, but I think the the certainly reaction and the appreciation and the feedback yeah. I got was was extraordinary. And um, and there's no need to have a musical education or an expertise or experience uh, with classical music, because I think the music's so powerful that yes. it speaks for itself and it connects to anybody. I, I totally, totally agree. Then the question comes, how do you get people into an environment where they're, they have a chance to hear it? And that's why I think, you know, the national, going back to the national service idea, the whole idea is to get people who are in rural America to come live in urban America for you know, a year or two, and people in urban America to go live in rural America for a while mm. and, and get a sense of what it is like to be poor and in rural America or you know, or fairly hopeless or you've got the mental problems that are growing up and all the rest. I think people that get exposed to that want to change it. And they, they just, they want to be proud of what their generation does. They want to be able to, you know, look back 30, 40, 50 years later and say, you know, we, we, made, a, we made a difference while we were here. And I think we can do that. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, I'm a big, I'm a passionate believer we can do that, but we've got to, we've got to get moving. We've got, we've, we've got to first say, how can, what are the steps we can take that would make us a better people, that would help us to, to elevate? How do we, how do we teach our kids? I, I think, you know, we're worried way too much about what they're teaching kids about the sex, sexuality or uh, uh, systemic racism and ought, what we ought to be teaching our kids what are the possibilities in life what are the positive things you could be doing you could be John Lewis but li understand what John Lewis had to go through you could be John McCain you could be Ruth Bader Ginsburg you could be you know um, the, the, the Wendy Cop to the world um, there, there are some wonderful people out there who are role models but, but if we all we do is talk to each other about how awful things are we're not going to make it out of here. We've got to have some people, you know, we need a Kennedy-like charismatic figure uh, who we trust. You know, we, we learned that Kennedy, when he had the Bay of Pigs, you know, and it was worse, it was terrible his first year, just really terrible. But he went out and told the truth about what happened. And he, it was when he famously said, you know, defeat has, um, uh, victory has many fathers, but defeat is always an orphan. And I take responsibility for the defeat here at the Bay of Pigs. It was my mistake. I took, I take responsibility. You know what happened? His popularity went up 10 points because people thought he was being honest and people thought he's, he's in this for us. Um, and, and that sustained him through that period of time. People, people forget that President Kennedy, as a, he was a strong Democrat, no question about it, but he had a Republican to serve as a Secretary of Treasury. He had a Republican to serve as Secretary of Defense. He had a Republican to head up the, head up the CIA. And he had a Republican to run his national security team out of the White House, out of the White House, where they had all the, 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 the political conversations you can, you can imagine. But that's the, way we, that's the way we held together as a people. 
we had people like Kennedy. We had the, 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 the Martin Luther Kings and others who came forward. Um, and it made a big, big difference. And we need those people again. And we need the, in the road. The press has got to give them a break and let them, let them have a day in, in front of the American people, not before they start before they start tearing them down. I, I remember so well when Colin Powell, when it was reported out uh, properly that Colin Powell was thinking about uh, seriously about running for president. The columns that came the next three to four days after that were not about what Colin Powell could potentially do for the country. The columns always asked the question, what did he do wrong in Vietnam? Where did he get it wrong in Vietnam? And, you know, you, you, you can't let people, if people are going to rise, you've got to have some level of appreciation for what they've been been through. There's so much I, I'd like to you know go back and talk about. We don't have unlimited time, but, you know, just just sure. uh, on, on a, another uh, another sort of semi related note. So let's say you were with these four presidents for yes. different people, both parties. I wonder if there's there's anything sort of personal that that you can share about any of them that that would be interesting or illuminating. I mean, I mean, just the idea of, you know, being being around Nixon, OK, Ford. Reagan, Clinton, uh, widely different people. What what sort of personal yeah. things? I mean, yeah. Well, let me just get some say this about Nixon. Nixon was the best strategist I've ever met in public life. He he, he metaphorically he he'd go up on a mountaintop and and look into the past. And as Churchill said, he who can see farther back can see farther ahead. And Nixon had a very very good sense of what was coming over the horizon and was able to, to rise to that. Had that been all there was to Nixon, he would have been he would have been one of our better presidents. But of course it wasn't because he had demons inside him, Daniel. He had never learned to control. And they eventually sort of did him in. He was, his, his leadership does start from within. You've got to get it right inside yourself. You've got to, you've got to be able to lead yourself before you can serve others. Um, and, and, and service is what leadership is all about. Um, so you have this guy Nixon who's very, very divided. And I had a conversation with him, the same same guy. I had a conversation with him shortly before he died. It was like three or four weeks before he died. And he called me and wanted to talk. And I thought he was going to, you know, he would give me a soliloquy about all the great things he'd done as president. But he but he wanted to talk about something else. Something else. And it was when he was elected to Congress in 1946. Uh, just after the war, he came back, took off his military clothes, got into civilian clothes, ran for Congress, was elected to Congress with a Republican wave. He was a Republican then, therefore Harry Truman, the Democrat who was president. Truman, just after, in the next years that followed, uh, saw that Europe was coming apart and wanted and proposed the Marshall Plan to help save Europe. Very expensive, but the the, country, the most citizens of the country were. We're exhausted from war and, you know, and all the blood, and all the treasure that had been spent. And, and so the Marshall Plan only had 18 percent support in the first Gallup poll. But Nixon was in, drawn in by Truman. Truman asked him if he'd come in as a Republican, working with the Democrats, if they could do something bipartisan. He, along with other Republicans, a number of them, worked with the Democrats and they got a bill that they, both sides could support. And Nixon said one of the proudest moments in his life, in his life came when the Marshall Plan was put to a vote on the floor of the House of Representatives. And he, Richard Nixon, young Republican, stood up to support the, the Marshall Plan. And there across the aisle, another future president stood up to support the Marshall Plan, John F. Kennedy. And Nixon said, the point is, 
when the chips are down, we stand up together. And that was his, for all of his flaws, which were many, it's, it represented an approach to civic life that was, that, that was slipping away from us. And we have to keep reminding our young people what it can be, what, what, you know, what is this out there that's inspiring? It's, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a tough, tough row. I mean, we're going to have, I don't think the next year is going to be easy at all. It can be very rough. But when this is over, I, I think we have the makings of rebuilding the country. The makings of rebuilding a country. Well, I, I hope, I hope you're right. I hope we don't have to rebuild too much. It, it's I agree. A, it is a as a young person, you know. I, I look at what I've my generations had to go through as you outlined in this yeah. book, and look at all 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 the things and and the fact that yeah. you know, we wake up one day and the world seems completely different upside yes. down than the day before, even. Uh, yeah. And so here we are, you know, doing the best we can. I think your case for civic engagement uh, is is very convincing. I think it may be one of the ways out. Uh, and and I, I have the book right here, which is Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. Uh, David Gergen, so much more to talk please. about. Yeah, please. Can I talk, yeah, I'll talk to you. Sam. I'm glad, oh, I want to circle back to the beginning. Good. You, you, you said... That the title of the book, and you're right, is attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Yes. Just a brief story. Holmes grew up in a very prominent family in uh, in Boston. His father was a big uh, doctor, and they had there was lots of money. So when Lincoln uh, issued the first order for volunteers, first request for volunteers, uh, Holmes could easily have ducked. A lot of people who were rich ducked. Teddy Roosevelt's father ducked, for example. Uh, but instead, he signed up. Uh, for the Massachusetts, I think, twentieth regiment, but and he put it. He decided he was twenty-three years old. He decided to put his life on the line for the country, and and volunteer. He was grievously wounded three times in battles that followed. The last time he was left for dead, he really had a very very tough time surviving and getting back up on his feet. But he did. He survived. And twenty years later, then he gave a speech Memorial Day looking back from the eyes of his generation about what the war had meant to his generation. And he said, you know, it is up to man to, to take part in the passions of his time, lest that he be seen as less than a man. And, and, he said, and he went on to say, in our times, our generation, we had who fought, we had our hearts touched with fire in the war. But it was one of the greatest things we did, and it had been with us all our lives, that we did something noble. And that's, I, I really like that heart's touch with the fire, because I do think we, have, we have, have to have more than policies. We have to have inspiration. We have to have some passion about what it is we're doing. The policies are fine. They're easier to come up with. To get big things done, as we should be doing, we need, we need to have some sense of, of, of a celestial fire. Well, maybe the answer is looking back to people like that. If we can't find them right now, yeah. maybe we need to read read a few quotes and get inspired. Absolutely. Absolutely. Inspires, inspires me and David Yeah, Gergen. go play more Bach. That will help everybody. I plan to do so, and I hope there's a next time for us to talk. This has been be fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and write a review if you would. That really helps. The original music for this show is by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. 
For more information, visit the website of the show, TalkingBeats.com. Thank you for listening. This is Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk.